Welcome to the Fly Fishing Insider Podcast, where each week we speak with brands, icons, innovators, and trailblazers within the fly fishing industry, exploring both the successes and failures they've encountered along the way to become who they are today. But first, if you have not yet subscribed to the podcast or joined our email list, please do so by going to the Fly Fisher Insider Podcast.com, where you can also find us on Instagram at Fly Fisher Insider Podcast. Now let's begin. Welcome to the Fly Fishing Insider Podcast. Today, our guest is Devin Olson. Devin is an author, father, competitive fly fisher, and super fishy guy who's knowledgeable on many things. Devin, I probably left a lot out in the uh, the intro there. I just finished reading your book. Um, you're a wealth of knowledge, and I can't wait to learn more about uh, some stuff from uh, from you today on today's show. So welcome to the show, and yeah, how's it going? Thanks, Greg. Uh, doing fine. Awesome. Yeah. So where are you based out of Devon? We're about in um, maybe an hour south of Salt Lake City in Utah, down in a town called Springville. Nice. Okay. That's pretty good. You guys are staying safe, no doubt, down there? So far, so good. Yeah. I mean, you know, like the rest of the world, there's been plenty of uh, COVID turmoil around us, but we've uh, done our best to follow guidelines and so far have been able to snake through without infection in our household or in the business so that's been good perfect dodging the vid so Devin, um you know i want you to take us back when did it start for you when did you get hooked on fly fishing and then when did you take it to the level that you're at now um with with the competitions and all that sort of stuff all right well you know i think the first time i ever even had a fly rod in my hand i was seven um but that was just kind of an initial day where I practiced a little casting with my dad. And I think he realized that, uh, he needed to wait a little bit longer at that point. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I, I ended up catching my first fish on a fly when I was nine. And I still remember that pretty vividly. Um, and you know, then I would say I used spinning and fly gear on and off for a few years after that. But basically by the time I was about 12, I was pretty hooked on, fly only and uh you know was doing everything i could to bum rides off of parents in the neighborhood or my parents to get us on up the local canyons to the little streams that we had around and and then you know just enjoy the days that my dad was able to take me fishing and uh i was lucky in that i had a couple of friends who were uh two years older than me so by the time i was 14 they got their driver's licenses and the rest is kind of history from there we were on the river after school, um, you know, a couple days a week, as long as we had daylight savings time. (laughs) So crazy. So then, yeah. When did it progress into, like I said, into the competitions and whatnot? Um, well, when I was 19, um, I first, I did my first fly fishing competition. Uh, there was a, TV show on the Outdoor Life Network back then called the Fly Fishing Masters, and I had seen the previous season. It was basically just a fly fishing reality TV show where you casted your way into the fishing portion, and then they had kind of head-to-head rounds of two-man teams against each other in the fishing portion. And uh, I decided that year that I wanted to do it, so I found a partner who was actually out of California that I'd only even met once, but he was the only better caster I knew who was also a decent angler. Um, and we showed up to Klamath Falls, Oregon and went and fi- cast our way into the fishing rounds and then, uh, fished against two guys who ended up kind of shaping my competitive future after that, um, who were Lance Egan and Ryan Barnes. Um, so that was my first competition. Um, and then that next year I ended up working at a fly shop, uh, that was just opening up and Lance and Ryan happened to both be switching from the fly shops they were at to working at that one as well mm-hmm. and they were both uh, members of fly fishing team usa at, by that time and uh so they got me interested in in the team usa stuff and i started 
kind of learning the different techniques that they were using since a lot of the sort of strike indicator nymphing based techniques that I had um, worked on mostly throughout uh, my time previous to that, they weren't, you know, allowed in the, the competitions. And, and so I started, you know, messing with some, some newer things. That, and uh, then that next year in 2006, I guess it would have been, um, I entered my first Team USA regional and finished just high enough that I made it to nationals. And then at nationals, I finished just high enough that I made the team. <laughs> and uh, then just kind of worked my way up from there. And um, I think it took me till, well, yeah, it took me till 2009 to make my first world championship team. But I've been on uh, every world championship team since for, for the U.S. Oh, wow. Pretty, yeah, pretty cool story there, Devin. You know, what was it like? Here you are, you're this 19-year-old kid. You're in a shop. You're doing competitive angling. You got a team of, like, support around you with with Lance and um, – uh, I'm drawing a blank here. But you got Lance. You got yourself. Ryan. Ryan. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, what was it like for you in that moment? Like, walk, walk me through that. Oh, I don't know. I, I don't think I was thinking too too much or too deeply about it. I was – you know, by the time I joined the shop, I was just a 20 year old kid who wanted to see how good I could get. Um, and so I, you know, maybe now I'm just a 35 year old guy who still wants to see how good I can get. (laughs) Uh, I, I, you know, I mean, I guess I, I try not to, uh, I, I've never really tried to assign too much meaning, um, to things or look for something deeper than, than what I'm seeing in front of me. Um, and so for me, it was just an opportunity to, to learn something different and try and get better. And, and, um, I, I've always tried to have a bit of a growth mindset where it's, uh, more, you know, what's next essentially, you know, I don't like sitting on whatever my laurels are, um, whatever accomplishments I've had, I want to find, you know, something better, or a way to get better, whether that's in fly fishing or the rest of my life. Like I, I have other competitive pursuits too. And, um, that's just sort of my own personality. If, if I don't do many things, but the things that I do, I, I want to do well and I want to, uh, get as good as I can at them for whatever my personal level might be at that. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, that was where I was at in that moment. And luckily I had, uh, Lance and Ryan there who, uh, we're both fantastic casters and anglers and, um, you know, we had lots of, I think the, the different thing about those two and about me, yeah. um, when it came to the competitive side of things is that we had a long history of being dedicated to fly fishing before we ever found a way to enter it competitively. And so we had a pretty good breadth of our foundation of just ability, um, to, to draw off of and, um, that, uh, has you know that served us well once we did enter that competitive arena because I think a lot of competitors I've met who've maybe um, done well in some competitions or in certain years or whatever but then tanked in the next one or whatever after that is they they learn certain things methods or or uh, whatever that are just geared towards kind of uh, niche competitive fly fishing methods but they don't have a large, large breadth of things to draw on uh, beyond that to help them solve problems if all of a sudden something's outside the little box that they've learned in the couple of years that they became dedicated to competitive angling so so we had a, a good breadth I would say there to share in that fly shop which was cool crazy so that's that's kind of cool I like that insight into uh, competitors and whatnot so let's talk a bit about comp- um, like competition life and stuff so what do you just like jump on a plane and fly out to uh, where was it last like was it at Tasmania last year um yep the last so, one was in Tasmania so were you, mm-hmm. were you there yeah yeah uh when was it I guess that was December of 2019 we were supposed to be in Finland this year in August but uh as we all know um <laughs> that along with many other things this year got canceled uh so that will hopefully be uh repeating uh next august and picking up where it left off but yeah tasmania was the last place so what's what's comp um, life like then like do you, you get on a plane you fly there you land in tasmania and then what like you do you guys have like are you put up or like do you sure like a hotel route like walk me through what it's like like yeah the, well uh, so typically what happens is is uh 
all the teams show up ahead of time, you know, for anywhere from, it just depends on the team. Some, some of the European teams that have more time off, they'll show up two, three weeks in advance. Um, typically we only get to show up like five to seven days in advance of when the actual tournament starts. Um, and we just hurry and settle in to trying to, uh, you know, get adjusted to time change for one thing, but also, uh, start practicing on whatever practice water there is available. Um, a lot of times that gets complicated because the actual venues that are, uh, being fished during the championship, they generally don't allow you to fish them beforehand, at least on the specific stretches of river or the actual lake or lakes that they might be having in that tournament. Um, so we can always go check them out and see them, but we often have to try and practice on water that's either similar or, um, you know, re- as representative as possible, which is often fraught with peril because <laughs> it, it only transfers over uh, so much. But we spend that week beforehand trying to practice as much as possible, get familiar, and doing lots and lots of fly tying because we always have, you know, a lot of flies that we've pre- prepared beforehand. But I would, I would bet that probably at least thirty percent or at least 25% of my fly tying for the year, as far as the volume of bugs that I tie probably, probably happens during the actual practice and, and, and tournament days <laughs> of, of the competitions that I'm in. I mean, uh, you never end up having what you actually want when you get there. And so then you spend long hours into the, the night, you know, tying and then getting up early and doing it all over again the next day. Yeah. So it's lots of fishing, um, trying to get familiar lots of tying and trying to recuperate as much as possible so that you're not an absolute, um, you know, shade of yourself once the competition days arrive. I guess housekeeping must be uh, thrilled with all the uh, materials left over and, and driv- drilled into the carpet and all that sort of stuff when you guys leave. So it's Yeah. Fun. I mean, you know, we try and be good stewards and ambassadors after all we're sort of representing the country. So we do our best when we check out of a place to, just at least in. have a pretty thorough cleanup. We're not going to, we're not able to get all the nitty gritty stuff out of the carpet, but you know, we try not to leave anything that a vacuum can't pick up. So <laughs> I'm just teasing you. It's funny. So, um, you know what, what's cool. And I, I like that little glimpse into like kind of what happens. Cause I have often wondered like, do you fish the same water? And like, if someone's there two weeks in advance, look at the advantage they have. So that's cool that you guys have practice water and then competition water, having never been in a competition. So um, I like that. And you know what else I like is is your book and how some of the – when we're talking about water, and I'm going to jump kind of into it. And when I was reading your book, I know chapter – I think it was chapter five, you talk about pocket water and why it's one of the most overlooked waters. And for those that haven't read the book, which I suggest everyone should, um, why – tell us. Tell us about pocket water. What do we miss in there? Well, um, there's a, a few reasons why I think pocket water gets overlooked a lot. Number one, uh, a lot of people don't like wading in it. Um, you know, many anglers that I know are pretty, uh, how can I put this, uh, <laughs> kindly, <laughs> they're not very daring when it comes to wading, um, and not very willing to put forth a lot of effort to get places. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of just, hop right out of the car or wherever that trail is right down to the river. They'll go find the easiest place to hop in on some gravel and they call it good. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things about competitive anglers that you'll find if you watch them is that they tend to be very assertive and aggressive when it comes to waiting. Cause we've got lots and lots of years behind us, uh, at, you know, practicing that skill, but also if you can't access a piece of water, you're leaving water untouched that could be the best part of your water in that mm-hmm. feet. And so we tend to be really aggressive um, and we do that in pocket water a lot. But, but the other thing is um, that at least in, you know, I don't know what it's uh, where the current state of, of techniques is that up there in BC. Um, but certainly in America, uh, I would say these days that most anglers probably learn to fly fish by, fishing a strike indicator, you know, or bobber rig, or whatever you want to call it. Um, on their local rivers, they go and lob out a, a strike mm-hmm. indicator with some split shot bef- below it with a nymph or nymph and, uh, you know, try and get a decent drift and hope that they catch fish. But the problem is that that rig in general 
it's limited to fishing well in very specific water types. Um, and one of those water types that it does not fish well is pocket water. And I have a bunch of diagrams in the book that sort of describes why, but basically it's just not set up to get a drift where you can actually get your flies drifting where the fish are and have strike detection and um, make your fly look natural at the same time. The, the rig has inherent faults for fishing that type of water. So a lot of people, uh, even if they try to fish pocket water to begin with, um, they don't have a lot of success with it, in it. And so they just assume that there aren't very many fish there. And I think that was where I was at before I started competing. You know, I would fish fair bits of pocket water and I would do better. I would do well in like the larger uh, bits of pocket water, the ones that were created by, you know, big enough boulders that yeah. I could fit my whole indicator rig in that, in that seam or in, in that pocket and, and get a drift. But whenever it got into pockets that were smaller, created by smaller diameter boulders and rocks, um, I would have pretty poor success. And so I, I just assumed there really wasn't very many fish there until I really started working on my sight fishing ability, I would say sort of late high school. And all of a sudden, when I went to some rivers where I could spot fish, and look, I would look in the pocket water and see how many fish were in there, and I was like, why am I not catching these fish? It took me a while to realize that it was because my my rig was not fishing it well. And then when I got into uh, fisheries biology, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, when I was uh, back in my, doing my undergrad, and I started working on electrofishing crews, I would electrofish through some really skinny pocket water, like, you know, inches to a foot to 18 inches deep pocket water. And all of a sudden there'd be trout tumbling out of that stuff like crazy. And I had never even tried to fish a lot of that type of water, let alone had an idea of a strategy that could, uh, at least very well. And so I was seeing all these fish coming out of these water types that the indicator rigs that I normally fish just couldn't fish well. And I was racking my brain of, okay, well, how can I fish this? Uh, effectively um, and so I, I, I like a lot of people you know I didn't realize how many fish there were in pocket water to begin with and I didn't have a strategy to fish it um, I wasn't as worried about the weighting aspect but uh, because of all those different um, things uh, I think a lot of people skip over pocket water and don't fish it uh, as much as they should and the, because of that the fish in, that are, are in pocket water that are really pretty darn easy to catch if you end up getting good presentations because they just don't get bugged a lot. Yep. I agree. Um, totally. I, I know like many of the steel headers that I talk to, same thing. They're always like hit the pocket water, man, hit the pocket water. So, um, it's kind of funny how that works out. Right. You know, Devin, you mentioned in there about, um, your biology days and, and, and whatnot, which is really cool. Cause I'm sure that's helped you out in, um, in, in the competition as well, like you just said, like finding that pocket water, having having that knowledge from a, from the electroshocking and whatnot. What are some other ways that it's helped you out, both as an angler and as a competition angler? You know, um, for me, uh, there wasn't there hasn't been a ton of crossover other than just some. Um, because a lot of, I, I had studied enough fisheries biology beforehand just because I was interested in it, mm-hmm. both um, in the, the science and the pursuit of it, but also in how it could uh, impact my, my fishing. So before I even uh, started studying it formally, I, I'd done enough reading on the, the, uh, the bits that were the least applied to the fishing that I didn't learn a whole lot extra through, through uh, uh, my undergrad and grad school that really made me much of a better angler. Um, other, uh, but uh, you know, what I think it did do for me on top of it was that it gave me an, uh, a sort of a science based or, you know, trial based world perspective, um, where I, I look for, for evidence, <laughs> evidence based things, uh, whether it's in fishing or in my everyday life. Um, so it's a perspective that I think is really stayed with me that I appreciate a lot. Um, and, and it's made me, uh, much less of a, a superstitious angler or, uh, you know, an angler that just chalks something up to the stars weren't aligned to that day. You know, I, I try and really solve problems, um, and understand logically why something is or isn't working instead of just, you know, leaving it up to some secret fly or some secret material or whatever that someone says is, 
the whole reason why they were catching fish. You know, I try and, and, uh, eliminate variables. And I think that's, uh, helped in my fishing, uh, quite a bit because that in addition to the, you know, the work on, uh, just the actual trout physiology and things that have helped me understand some of their behavior as well. Absolutely. You can see how, you know what I mean? The science is cool. Cause you say you like you're science based, right? So, and that's what your, your book has a fair bit of it. Like, you know, I'm looking right now at something's called the riffle cave study number one, right? And you have, you know, riffle um, case study and uh, number two, and it's just a lot of those information in that book for that. So you can see how it's translated down and, and provided you that data to again, effectively fish more, more effectively. One of the, the simplest mm-hmm. things that I, I can say is, is, um, you know, you, you use a stomach pump and I mean, is that true with, I mean, we in Stillwater fly fishing use, I use a stomach pump like consistently, um, until we figure out the hatch, right? Um, are you consistently using a stomach pump in, in the fish that you're hitting like in the, in the river still? You know, I, I, I don't have to do that much in my home rivers just cause I know them well enough and I, uh, that they're I'm patterned enough to what's going on. Um, normally what, where that comes in handy is we'll use it a fair bit during practice for a tournament, for instance, mm-hmm. where we're on a river that we've maybe never, we don't even have any information about. It's, it's amazing how many times we go to world championships where, you know, we, we get this list of venues for the championship and there's, a, there's even in this internet age, there's nothing available about them online, like nothing at all. Um, other than just it's there, <laughs> but there's no fishing information, uh, no, you know, fly recommendations, no hatch chart, no nothing. Um, and so a lot of times it's just a, a crash course and how, how quickly can you figure this out when you get there? So, you know, we'll, we'll pump the occasional fish while we're out fishing, um, those days so that we sort of have an idea of, any specific food forms that might be, you know, really important in the child's diet at that time that, that we might imitate. But a lot of our patterns end up not being terribly imitative anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just sort of a general um, guide reference, uh, but it's not, it's certainly not hard and fast what we end up doing all the time. A lot of times we still very much rely on impressionistic or attractor based patterns or even shock patterns that that uh, have nothing really to do with what the fish are eating at that time but, but occasionally you know we might find a certain macroinvertebrate or insect that's really important in the drift that uh, that does help guide some of our our decisions so um, the stomach pump is a useful tool but it's not it's not something that you can rely on as a crutch <laughs> I, yeah I mean I I don't, it's funny fish are funny that's what I, I can agree with you on that i mean there's times where we've pumped stuff and you're like why are they not hitting right like you know what i mean this is the color i match in the hatch everything's going good but you throw the weirdest thing out there and boom you're just getting smoked all day on that so i know that's how it works up here sometimes. well yeah i mean for instance yesterday i was out uh, fishing a, a lake up north of me and just like many of our lakes this time of year, there's really not much hatching at this point. No. Um, those, the hatches are, are gone for the year and the water's getting cold before I up again. I mean, I say, th- I literally think I saw two coronamids yesterday. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we pumped a few fish and 98% of what they had in them was just Daphnia. Yeah, and exactly. it's not like yeah. you're gonna, not like you got much of a shot at imitating that, but guess what? They ate, you know, hothead buggers just fine. <laughs> so, and it's a, it's another one of those things where it's just, it's a good guide occasionally, but, but it's, you can't rely on it to make all your decisions for you. Yeah, no, I agree. That's what we're getting right now up here as well is, is a ton of Daphnia. So, I mean, it's, it's, I'm sure it's everywhere, right? With lakes. So, um, that are in the colder seasons that are about to turn over here. So, um, you know what? It's funny how you'd mentioned that. What is the craziest thing you've ever pulled out of a stomach pump? I always like to ask that. Oh man, that's a good question. Um, well, uh, at least recently, <laughs> I was more just surprised that it fit in the pump. But I think was the, the surprising part. Okay, well, I've got two two for you. All right. Um, so uh, we were at a regional a, a tournament um, October of last year. That's uh, so about a year ago, 
and I, I pumped this rainbow during practice. And, you know, I, I sucked some typical, you know, caddis larva and whatever else out of it. But then I also, I got three dates out of it. And somehow they fit in the stomach pump too. Three <laughs> so I squirted them out into my hand and dates, uh, little bait fish. Oh, wow. And, um, and, and one of them was still alive when, <laughs> when I put it in my hand. So I, uh, I, I basically saved that, that fish from, from death that day. Um, <laughs> so that, that was an interesting one. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a strange one. Um, and then, uh, there was, <laughs> there was one, oh, this is off. This is a while back. This is, uh, we were fishing ice off at a lake in Idaho. Uh, it was like April one year. It's probably been, I don't know, a dozen years back at this point. Cause I think it was when I was still doing my undergrad at Utah state. And, uh, so we, we were fishing this lake and my buddy caught this fish and unfortunately had taken the fly too deep and it was bleeding like a stuck pig. So we knew we were going to have to keep it anyway. Um, and so he is like, well, we might as well just pump it to see what it has in it. So we, we pumped it and we got this gob of leeches that like clogged the pump and we couldn't get, you know, any more out of it. So then we, we got those out and then we pumped it again <laughs> and we got those out. We pumped it. We ended up getting like six pumpfuls of leeches out of this thing. And finally we were like, how many more are in this? Um, and the fish is dead anyway, because like I say, you know, it had been bleeding. So we basically ended up just massaging its stomach and doing a, a gastric lavage on it and trying to get it to, to vomit up anything else that was in there. And we, we ended up getting over two dozen, uh, like olive brown leeches out of this one fish. And every single one of those leeches was three to four inches long. And, and there was a reason why when he landed it, it looked like it had a couple of golf balls in his stomach. And it's cause it was so stuffed full of leeches that wow. I don't know how it was eating anything else. At that point. No, doubt. <laughs> no doubt. Just pure protein. Eh? I like it. It's funny. It, yeah. I mean, it was packing it on. Uh, it was excited that, uh, it finally had some liquid water overhead, even though it was only a little bit at that point. It's so funny just to talk some still water with you. So I got to ask, what what's your favorite water to fish? Are you still water, moving water, like like rivers? Like what what's your favorite water to fish? You know, it's funny. It often depends on the season or whatever. I just most recently fished. Um, I get jazzed about whatever I'm doing at the time. And so, uh, you know, a lot of times I'll get on a kick for a couple weeks where, I'll, you know, especially when the still waters are just not. Mm-hmm in good shape or when it's iced, iced over or whatever, where all I'm thinking about is river fishing and, you know, the next river trip, whatever. And, uh, and that's it. And then there's times where like right now I just got off the Stillwater day and we've only got a few weeks left of the season before things start icing up. And all I care about right now is getting my boat out as many more days as I can. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, like a half day during the week or whatever, I will, I'll, you know, be out on the rivers, but most full days, you know, until I up, I'm out in my boat, um, and trying to take advantage of it as long as it lasts. Cause I can fish rivers throughout the winter around here. I'm fortunate enough that we've got tailwaters and or spring feds or, you know, whatever free stones that don't freeze. So, um, I've got uh, still quite a few options to fish during the winter, uh, on moving water, but you know, still water is out of the question until, it was probably late March, early April again. And so I try and eke as much out of that season as I can, since I know it's going to be a while. That's <laughs> exactly it. I mean, we've probably got like two weeks left. So the, the countdown is on here. So for us, for sure. Um, you know, De- Devin, I did want to ask you as well, um, just about when you're fishing, like tell us some tactics, tell us some tips, like fishing for, for trout in, in the rivers in the wintertime. I know that it can be a bit slower. It can be, a bit more frustrating for some people, um, you know, but what do you, what have you learned? Well, I think, um, I think what, what you need to focus on to begin with is what you should focus on anytime you're out on the river. And that's where the fish are first, because, um, I see a lot of people casting repeatedly to empty water, um, during different parts of the season or water that at least has less fish in it. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I wrote about a lot in my book was 
uh, trout metabolic rates in relation to temperature and what those metabolic rates end up um, not making the fish do, but at least uh, the, the fish base a lot of their positioning in the river on, on that metabolic rate and the demand they have for energy and consumption, you know, food and, and where they can get food when they really want it and where they can save it when they don't. Um, so, uh, really what it boils down to is just identifying water to begin with. That's the most productive depending upon the time of year. And so temperature has a lot to do with that. Um, so I look for, uh, you know, slower, deeper water in general during the, the colder months of the year. And then once you're, you're, you've identified that, then you got to find, uh, ways to fish that best. And actually, uh, I do a lot of my, um, winter fishing, you know, you know, with a Euro nymph rig, but I do it with a dry and a dropper because I find a lot of the water that fish pile into in my local, uh, rivers, it's so slow and, um, steady that if I try standard Euro nymph drifts through it, I just don't get a good presentation through that mm-hmm. type of water, especially, um, uh, a lot of times I have to stay back a few feet further than I might at other times or in other water types. And so with the dry dropper, I can lay it out there a little bit further away and suspend that nymph um, and get a better drift through that, that pool or that sort of deep uh, trough in the middle of wherever I'm fishing. And so I'll, I'll typically sort of dry dropper through a lot of winter water first, and then I'll go back through it with a, a deeper nymph rig afterward and try and clean up whatever's left. Um, and that often produces a lot of extra fish, uh, because I crop off any of those fish that might be willing to come up a little bit in the column, Mm -hmm. even though they're less willing to do that in the the winter generally, but, but I can crop off some of those little more aggressive fish that are up up high to begin with and, uh, maybe gradually work my way down with, uh, you know, one bead size heavier after I've caught some fish or something. And then I can go back through with, a different rig that shows the fish a different look, um, maybe in a different part of the column and or different patterns. And, uh, once, once I've done that, a lot of times there's still more fish left there. So I can go back through it once again with uh, a streamer on a Euro nymphing rig and jig or pulse my, my streamer flies through a pot of fish. And, uh, that triggers a bunch of reaction strikes that maybe I didn't get with the nymph, but I generally don't like to do that first because, um, that kind of spells the end of good nymph fishing. If you've gotten fish to freak out and jostle around a lot, uh, or after the streamer, they generally don't react as well to nymphs after that. So typically I'll kind of work through a lot of winter water in a, you know, like that three-step process of, of a dry dropper, slower rig first, then nymphing, and then go back through the streamer. And you can, um, really, get extra fish and since the in the winter the fish are more focused into um specific parts of the river and there aren't as many in that in between water that i spend a lot of time fishing the rest of the year then you really have to get the most out of those winter holding spots because they just aren't very numerous yeah i mean they're not like you're fishing right you're casting you're fishing it's drifting by like you're flies going by and stuff like that like i mean how many casts are you making to that pool before switching out to to the streamer i get asked that all the time and i don't have a good answer for you yeah um it's something that's based on feel after lots of experience typically i i know that those those rigs are going to work well um and so i'm going to sort through patterns and and or weights or lengths of tippet uh originally mm-hmm and find a way to catch some fish. And normally once I get the, the fly and the, you know, the drift and the rig, right. I'm going to put quite a few fish in the net in short order. Like, you know, you can put five, 10 or more fish in the net in a span of, you know, 20 minutes, um, pretty easily and maybe less. Uh, but then all of a sudden you're going to hit a spot where you're going to make, you know, three, four or five drifts without a take after you've had, takes on every other to every third or every fourth drift for a while and so once you hit that spot then i'm going to make a change whether that's my position or another part of the rig the fly the length or whatever and then once i've gone through several 
several iterations of those changes and I've made 10, 15, 20 casts without fish anymore, then I'm going to, you know, switch to the next method. And, um, it's just, uh, you feel a natural switch in momentum, I would guess mm-hmm. in each spot. And, but the hard part is that if you're not doing it right to begin with, you're never going to catch those fish that are going to give you a feel of that. But, and so that's a hard thing for me to give like a set number to a lot of people because also when I've fished with, you know, a lot of newer folks or just people who aren't, you know, top notch, you know, world class level anglers, et cetera, they're just making a lot of drifts that aren't good to begin with. Like maybe only every third or fourth drift of theirs is actually fish catching worthy to begin with. So if I tell you, you know, make 20 casts and if some hasn't worked, then you got to change or move. Well, you actually really only made about five or, or seven or eight of those that were worth fishing and the rest of them didn't go as planned, but people don't recognize that. So it's, you know, it's a hard thing to, to say, but, um, so I, I guess the first thing is most anglers need to do a lot of work to actually recognize when they truly have a good drift. And that's not an easy thing for a lot of folks to recognize. And it well, comes through lots of years of, of, of experience. So let me ask you right now, what are you looking for in a good drift? Well, very specific things that I can't really describe verbally. Um, <laughs> a lot of times, Here, but we'll, I, we'll I'm, 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 well, I, uh, you know, well, I mean, I'm not trying to hold anything back. It's just a matter of I'm lo- I'm looking at very specific speed changes, uh, tension level in my rig. Um, so, like for instance, if I'm making a typical Euro nymph drift, I expect to see something I call the downshift. So I want my fly to, you know, drop in the first ten to twenty percent of my drift. Um, through the column and, and get somewhere down in that boundary layer that's near the bottom that generally is slower than the water in the top part of the column. And so once it's penetrated those upper layers and it gets down near the bottom, all of a sudden in my leader, I see a general, in general, not always, but I'll see a tightening of my leader where there's less slack. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll get a little bit straighter and it will, and that's because it's pulling back on the tippet that's above that's trying to still go the same speed as the water that's above it. And so that that nymph has dropped down into the lower layer where it's wanting to slow down, but everything above is wanting to keep going that speed so it, it tightens up. And so you'll get a little bit of tightening, a little bit of slowing, and um you know, if I can observe that followed by, you know, the occasional a uh, tick of the bottom towards the end of the drift, not every cast, but every, you know, four to five or six casts, then I generally believe I'm at least in the right uh, water column or part of the water column at that point. And I can repeat the look that um, whenever I do catch a fish, I, I try and uh, you, you sort of have that mental recall of what did it look like before I caught that fish? Well, repeat those angles repeat that tension, repeat what it looked like when you did catch that fish. And if it doesn't look that same way on your next couple of drifts, what, what looks different and how can I get it to emulate what worked when I caught that last fish? So I think, um, a lot of, uh, learning to recognize what a good drift is, is learning to remember what your rig looks like when you catch fish. And, uh, then once you've caught lots of fish and you see what your drifts look like then versus, the dress that, ah, oh, that, that just didn't go through there. Right. That went through a little quick or that got spat out to the side from where I thought it should be. You know, that, that, that went on the, the outside edge of the seam, um, instead of the inside edge. And so it went through too quick, something like that. You know, you get to, you get used to, to looking at, uh, at what looked right when you catch a fish and what looked wrong when you didn't. And hopefully that, that helps you recognize those drifts that are good. Yeah, I think that should help a few people at least going on here going forward for sure. So, and Devin, you know, I, I know in the earlier on in the show you mentioned about sight fishing and you learned to sight fish really well. And in the winter time, I'm sure that's just as important um, if you can. I know they're down deeper, but what are some ways or what are some tips on on sight fishing that you can offer us? Oh well, so. I have some, you know, I have a, a fair number in the book. I also, um, if people want to 
read my specific blog on it. I wrote a blog about uh, a trip that I had to New Zealand a couple winters ago. I was going to go back this year, and you know that didn't happen, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) But I I, I think I wrote at least two articles about that trip. Um, So they they scroll back through the blog; they'll be able to find them. But um, really, what what you have to be able to do first is learn how to spot fish. And, you know, I hate to keep coming back to the same, um, sort of thought process or, uh, ring the same, you know, bell, but a lot of that is based on experience. Yeah. Um, and, and, and concerted effort. A lot of people I meet when they're out fishing, they don't really even try to look for fish. Um, and I think that's a big mistake because I think there's, it, they're a lot easier to spot if you make a concerted effort um, each time that you're out in whatever water type that you're fishing in. Um, you know, and some people don't have rivers that have very good clarity and they just never do. And so they're likely going to have pretty rare sight fishing opportunity. But if you do, if you are fortunate enough to live somewhere where the, the river's clear um, and you can get good at it, you can learn to spot fish really well. Uh, with some practice. So I, uh, I think, um, the first thing there is to, to look at the river's color and, and get really good at identifying when the color looks slightly off from what it should based on the surrounding water. Um, so for instance, like in New Zealand, the Browns in a lot of the South Island river there or South Island rivers, they have this greenish hue to their back. And, you know, it's, they have a pretty unique color compared to browns elsewhere. For, so, for instance, if I was fishing my a lot of my local rivers, when I look for browns here, I look for more of like an orangey color because we get browns that get a lot of orange on them even throughout the year. Yep. Um, so I'll look for more of an orange hue. But in New Zealand, I would look for a green hue um, that's just a slight different shade than the surrounding water. and um, Or you can look for something that looks darker than the rest of it. And you might be actually seeing the fish's shadow before you see the fish itself. Um, or if you're in a place that has rainbows, you're going to look for a little bit of pink or a little bit of red. And a lot of times with rainbows, I'll see the, that crimson part of it before I'll see the rest of the fish. Cause it, that looks really different from <laughs> the bottom of most trout rivers. Yep. Um, so, you know, learning to spot color and then movement. Um, you know, a lot of times what gets trout away is movement. And just actually picturing, am I seeing a fin? You know, like, am I looking at a trout shape under the water? And sometimes you're going to make a wrong, a wrong um, guess, and it might be a log or a weed that has a fishy shape that you all of a sudden fish to. But other times, it might be a fish. And if you get that confirmed by fishing to that and catching it, then you're like, yeah, I was seeing the right thing. And then, other, you know, sometimes it's just blatantly obvious when you see one uh, and they're not hard, but by learning or, you know, to spot that you can then crawl, like basically walk up a river, like a heron. Um, there's a stretch of my local river right now where the, you know, it's probably going to change real quick here with the cold snap we're having. But at least when I was out, uh, the beginning of the week on it, there were fish sitting in ripple type or even inches deep glide water everywhere in it. And they have been all summer long. Um, it's the type of water that I, I just go with a micro euro nymphing leader and a, and a two millimeter tungsten bead. And I just hit these fish basically on the head and in literally about six to 10 inches of water. And uh, that's the type of water I'm looking for fish in. Um, there's still plenty of fish in the more obvious, better looking a water. That's got that classic seam, that classic depth drop off, whatever, but any tiny little depression in the, the rest of this, you know, what most people would call featureless water. If you're careful and you get a good sun angle, you can spot those fish and just come up behind them and catch them. And, um, but you have to make that concerted effort first. So I think another thing people can do is actually pay attention in front of them or around their feet when they're walking up river. Um, one of the things, you know, if you, if you weren't on an electrofishing crew like me, where all of a sudden you saw a fish tumbling out of that type of water and you're like, Oh wow, I didn't think fish would hold there. Um, you can also pay attention as you're wading up a river to when you're spooking fish out ahead of you and look at that and, and think to yourself, uh, okay, that was an interesting place for a fish to spook out of. Uh, why, you know, what, what type of water was that? And 
and what water up ahead can I look around that's similar? Maybe there's going to be a fish in there. So I should stop before I go step on that, look in there first and see if I can spot anything before, you know, moving upstream. And sometimes you might want to make a cast or two in there. If you can't really see into it. Well, and other times, you know, you should get a pretty clear idea. Um, if you're good at looking into spots like that, whether there's a fish there or not. And then, you know, on top of that, I, um, I think you just need to learn to look for likely water and then spend time searching it with your eyes. Um, um, and that's just based off of where, where do you normally catch fish? Um, and once you're there, uh, spend some time staring into it. If, if there's any clarity at all and see if you can notice those fish with a good sun angle before, uh, before you just start clunking and dunking and your rig in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, all good tips, man. I know, uh, yeah, I like the color one. I've never actually thought about that, but those bright red stripes on, uh, on the rainbow there, um, or the pink stripes there, they, um, probably give it away. I, I look for movement myself and like movement and shape, but, um, I think that's going to definitely improve my game on that as well. So all good tips. Yeah. For me, uh, I, I would say it's probably color first. And then yeah. those other two. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm definitely gonna so, start applying that. Like, think I mean, about that. That, but I like how you you point out, like, learn the color of the water first, and then you know what I mean. Then look for that imbalance, right? Because that's gonna, that's definitely gonna change it. So for sure, um, yep, definitely like that. All good tips. They're all in the book. The book is called Tactical Fly Fishing. How how long ago did you write the book? Three years ago? No. Oh, uh, let's see. It came out. In January of uh, 2019, oh. I think. So, so yeah. yeah, I finished it in March of 2018. There you are. So like a year ago. So fantastic book. Wealth of knowledge. Um, you know, it applies for, for anything, for, like so much knowledge. I mean, definitely every angler should pick it up. It's, um, you know, I, I've got good things to say about it, obviously. So, Devin, um What's next for you going forward? Anything that on the horizon or anything going on? Or are you just chilling, avoiding COVID? Well, you know, I think a lot of us are sort of in what what can we actually do next, uh, given the pandemic. Um, so, you know, eventually things will start picking up again as far as travel and competitions and, and all that. Uh, for now, I'm um, just running our, our shop. So we do have a, I have a, um, an online fly fishing shop called tactical fly fisher. And so that's my day day job uh, is running that. And these days I'm mostly just sort of forming the content for it. So, uh, we go out and shoot lots of YouTube videos for tips and, uh, um, you know, I'm in the process of writing another book as well. This one won't be out until, uh, probably 2020, let's see, probably 2022, I think is when it's due out. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, this one's on lakes, actually, so it'll be a bit different than the first one. Oh, um, can't wait. So you know that's yeah, you know, that's been another uh, another reason to spend time on on the still waters lately is doing lots of case studies and and thinking about lake fishing for for content there. Um, so that's uh, that and the, the videos and just uh, you know taking care of kids are are my my biggest things right now. My my wife's in nursing school, so. So I've, uh, I'm lucky in that because I work from home, I get to do a little more of the kid wrangling duties than, than I used to. So, uh, there's that as well. And then just, uh, you know, staying on the water and on my bike as much as possible. Since yeah. Those are pretty much my two favorite things to do outside of, <laughs> of uh, my house. So. I bet I'm sure the other, th I'm sure the third thing is try to stay away from your wife. Cause I went through nursing school and my wife's a nurse as well. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's stressful. <laughs> So, yeah, um, I, I certainly learned to pick up on cues of when I need to give her some space and, <laughs> and uh, maybe when she needs a little bit of support too. <laughs> you bet, you bet. It's one of those things. There's no like, yeah, you, it's pass fail, you know, <laughs> like you either killed a patient or you didn't. So, um, it's kind of, <laughs> it's, it's kind of how it happens in nursing school. So you got a lot to learn. <laughs> so, um, you know, Devin, super, super cool. Talk. I love talking to you, man. Like I, I can't wait for everything that you got coming out for going forward. Um, pumped on all that. The book is fantastic. Like I said, Daniel, you know, I highly suggest people pick it up. So where could they find you? Where could they find the book? Where can they watch your YouTube videos, follow along and, and enjoy everything that you're creating for us? 
Yep. So if you just Google tactical, uh, tactical fly fisher, you'll probably come up with all of our separate channels. So, um, we're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube under the tactical fly fisher name. Um, and then if you come to tacticalflyfisher.com, uh, we certainly have lots of, you know, things to buy, fly tying and, and fly fishing, uh, gear that, you know, is kind of, it's tailored towards competitive methods and competitive patterns that, that I've learned throughout the years. So we have a, a pretty big focus on that. Um, but we also, if you look in the books and DVDs category on the shop, so I have my book there. Um, you can pick up an autographed copy from us, but we also have our three instructional films, uh, modern nymphing, modern nymphing elevated and, um, shoot, uh, adaptive fly fishing <laughs> for a second. The title was, uh, slipping my mind. But we have those both in DVD form and uh, digital download form. So if you go and click on the product description in uh, those on the website, you can uh, choose whether you want a hard copy or if you want it on Vimeo um, with a digital download or or, uh, streaming. So those films combined with the book, I think, offer each other a lot of support um, so that people get learning from from different you know, content avenues. Some people learn really well by video and others by repeatedly reading over, you know, something in a book. So I think they lend a lot of support because there's a lot of things I can write deeply about in a book that I can't, you know, show all of that in a video and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I definitely suggest anybody who, especially who wants to learn much about urinimping or just approaching rivers in a comprehensive way based on different water types that, they should pick up uh, those videos and, and the book and, you know, it may be a little bit of money up front, but hopefully it pays off a lot, uh, many times over with uh, better success on the water. It's the difference between catching and casting my friend. So, um, you know, that's, that's the hope. Yep. <laughs> no, I, I'm sure it is. There's a ton of knowledge in it. So for sure. So, you know, Devin, I am going to put all that information within our show notes and, uh, I want to thank you and I want to thank the listeners as well for being a part of this podcast. So thanks a lot, Devin. Yeah. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate you having me on. No worries. You've been listening to the fly fishing insider podcast. If you like this podcast episode, please let us know, leave a review and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast listening platform.